Guys, I'm excited. We, we, last week, we started a new series called Greater Than. We are walking through um, a letter in the New Testament, uh, referred to as the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, the, the word Hebrew is, is for, I didn't really kind of unpack that last week, but during the time of Roman rule in the first century, Hebrew was synonymous with Israelites, people who were descendants of Abraham. So this letter, as we unpacked last week, was a letter written to uh, people of Jewish descent but now following Jesus, most likely in the city of Rome, uh, on, the, on the cusp of some fairly heavy persecution. And the temptation, as it is for you and I today, when things get rough, we have two options. One is we dive deeper into Jesus, or we, we, let's check out some other options, right? And in a, in a, in a time where we walk through uh, more and more... Um, levels of persecution and disdain, let's say, for, for faith and for Christianity, um, we can maybe find ourselves the same, feeling the same way these, these first century believers did, in that maybe we'll just kind of distance ourselves a bit here. And the cry of the, the author of the letter to the Hebrews is, there's nothing better out there. Everything you've tried, Jesus is better. And, and what we're going to walk through over this, these next two months is the way that this uh, author unpacks this. For myself, in the last 20 years, there has been this wonderful, uh, the, the cinema has exploded with superheroes. Now, I'm happy about this because in the seven, if you were like me and you grew up in the 70s and 80s, you had superheroes that looked like this, okay? Um, that don't even kind of match up to uh, some of the superheroes we, we see today. Or even if we go further back, we would see the Adam West Batman before spandex, and maybe we're all happy about that. Um, but then we, we jump into the MCU, and we've got, see, the old heroes were kind of limited. They were limited by special effects. <laughs> There's only so much they could, they could do in, in those days, uh, in the 70s and 80s, because there was only so much that technologically we could pull off in a movie. Now, there's, there seems to be no limit. There's no comparison between the Captain America that I thought was such a loser back in the day, and how cool he is now. Iron Man, the, Iron Man in the 70s in the comic books, not so much. But the, but the, the Stark of today, the Tony Stark of today, he's got some class, he's got some style, and he's got some power, unlike many of the heroes that we, we used to try to get into, but had a hard time because they were so uh, limited. The powers of the old heroes were limited because they, they, they couldn't come up with it themselves and because those who created these movies could only write to the extent, could only make their heroes as powerful as their resources. The author of, of Hebrews, as he is writing to these first century believers, is, is saying, is he making it very clear that we can learn a lot from maybe the lives that we read about? In the old Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we can maybe learn a lot from that. But there is no hero in the Bible but Christ. There is no one who compares to Christ. And I know many of you are like me. You grew up with hero Bibles, which went through like all these Old Testament heroes. And you're like, Samson, hero, really? He had a few good things, but not right across the board. Solomon, hero? Easy. Christ is the one and only hero of Scripture. He's, he's the top of the story. Every other one was limited. 
limited by sin, limited by resources, but not Christ. Jesus, with all the power of heaven at his disposal, as his disposal, steps into the predicament of humanity. He kicks down the door of sin and death, and he leads those who are stuck in the dark out. That's the story of Christianity. And he does it in a way unexpected. He does it almost covertly, covertly in a way that we wouldn't have thought of. So I want to invite you, you can go to chchurch.info uh, and you can uh, take a look at the sermon notes there under Town Center. If you want to go old-fashioned and grab, this is, a, this is an actual physical Bible. They actually have Bible museums now. Did you know that? Because people forgot what they looked like. Um, but if you have your Bible, whether it's digital or physical, I'm going to invite you to stand. And I'd like to read to you out of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. We're actually going to be walking through chapters 1 and 2 uh, together this morning, but I just want to read this to kind of start ourselves off. Word of God to us this morning, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. That's unpacked in the New Testament as anyone who follows the God of Scripture is a follower of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. God, I pray you would open our hearts and minds this morning to be able to know even more what it means to proclaim the greatness of your son, Jesus Christ. What it means to to lift him up and glorify his name. What it means to have him as the ultimate hero of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got some backup music going on. You guys can take a seat. Guys, um, there's always a danger when, when you want to kind of dive deep in and do some theology. I think it was Philip Yancey. He said, when you, when you dissect something, you have to kill it first. What I don't want to happen as we walk through Scripture is that it becomes dull and, and, and so minute. I want us to be able to walk through uh, the book of Hebrews and be able to, to grab on to who Jesus is and to be able to, to walk with that in our everyday lives. Good theology uh, makes for good faith. Good theology makes for good faith. Nowhere in Scripture, and this is the kind of faith that a lot of people walk with, nowhere in Scripture is it kind of, you know, if you ever, I can't remember which Avengers movie, but the Hulk is trying to turn into the Hulk. Bruce Banner is just trying throughout the whole, and he kind of gets a little green, but not quite. A lot of people think that's how faith works. Just, I need faith. That's not how faith works in Scripture. Faith works in Scripture by saying, Let's look at the truth of who God is. Let's look at the truth of who Jesus is and let that sustain you through the dark shadowy times. Because of how great Jesus is, because of how great God has worked in the past, you can trust him for the future. It's never a blind leap of faith. There's no such thing as blind faith in scripture because all faith is based on the character of God. So that is why we walk through things like this. So what I want to do this morning, what we'll be doing uh, a lot through the series is unpacking who Jesus is in relationship to different characters in scripture, as well as to you and I. And today I want to talk about Jesus' relationship to God the Father, to the angels, 
and to you and I. So who is Jesus in relationship to the Father? We, we see this in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. First, it says in verse 2, he's, did, we, did we drop something? Is everyone okay over here? Okay, I saw everyone looking. People throwing money? Okay, it's all right, we're good. As long as it's not a person. John, uh, John the Apostle writes something similar. It says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the very expression of God is, is in the person of Jesus Christ. So first off, he is, he is the message of God. He is the Son of God. Five times in the first four verses, of Hebrews chapter 1, five times it refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And that's an important point. When someone is referred to as the Son in Scripture, it always means everything that belongs to the Father is an inheritance to the Son. So when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, Scripture's trying to get us, gift us a very important message. Everything that God reigns over belongs to the Son. It is His inheritance. And what's great about an inheritance is you can give it to whoever you want. And we find out as we unpack scripture that Jesus wants to share that inheritance with his brothers and sisters, you and I. That's, that's the beautiful story of scripture. He owns all that the Father owns, and he has all the power that the Father has. Next, he's the exact representation of God the Father. It says in verse 3, the Son radiates, we have the text up there. Thanks. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. One of the the ways you can spot a cult is by what they do with Jesus. When they start taking away his power, so maybe he was an angelic being. Maybe he was the spirit brother of Lucifer. Maybe he was just a, a man who would kind of became enlightened. Jesus made it clear. He shares authority, identity, power, and glory with God. And that's exactly what the first followers of Jesus believed. So if you step into a church and they start trying to strip Jesus of his power and his authority, find the exit quickly. Jesus radiates God's own glory. He isn't just a reflection of God's glory. He radiates God's glory. It's not like the moon reflecting the sun. He, he shares the glory of God the Father, like, a, like an image on a coin. The, the actual word there that for, for character, so where we get the word character, is the idea of a, of a signet ring that has a picture on it that you press into wax, and it's the exact imitation. Oh, that does not light up at all, does it? <laughs> There's actually an image on there carved in of the god Mercury. And so when a king would use a ring like this, and this is around the same time that, that the, the, the writer of Hebrews would have been writing, they would press that into wax on a letter and send it off. And the person bringing that letter has the exact authority of the king who pressed it. Oh, thanks for trying. <laughs> I, I, I could have given you something better to work with. Jesus is the exact expression of God's power. He sustains the universe, the writer says, carrying the full authority of the king. So what that means is you say no to the son, you've said no to the father. Hear that. You say no to Jesus, you say no to the God of creation. I cannot count the amount of times someone has told me that my own son is a copy of me. We are going to be hanging out with some of my family this afternoon. Anytime we are in a family setting and my son finds a new level of goofiness, I turn, and there's, there's many layers. I turn to my siblings, who are all older than me, I turn to my parents, and I say, was I like that? And they're like, you were worse. 
He is an exact representation of you. Scripture makes it clear. Jesus is not just a chip off the old block. He's the block. (laughs) Jesus is not an apple that fell off the tree. He's the tree. He is the exact image and glory of God. Paul makes this same statement in Colossians 1.15. He says this. He does. He says it. I got it here. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Apparently, I didn't put that up there. He exists before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. He is the exact representation of God the Father. And because of all that, he is God's method of salvation. The only method of salvation, he says in verse 3. Jesus, after his life, death, and resurrection, is seated next to God the Father, which is what princes do when they've done their job. They sit next to their father. Their task has been completed. It's a sign of honor and validation of completing your task. He is the mouthpiece. He is the son. He is the exact representation of the father. He is the very salvation offered by God. And here's the point. If Jesus is all those things, he must be listened to. If Jesus is all those things, we ought to be reading the Gospels. Don't don't just go straight to what Paul wrote to unpack. Look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because he is the voice, he is the son, he is the exact representation of the Father, and he is the very salvation offered by God the Father. That's why later on in Hebrews 2 verse 3, he'll say, so how can we ignore such a great salvation? In light of all this, how can we possibly ignore it? How can we possibly leave this place after declaring his greatness and sharing in communion and community together and go back to work on Monday like everything's the same? How is that possible? Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, we understand who Jesus is to the Father, but what about angels, Brad? I mean, we've been thinking about this all week. And that's the real question burning on people's minds. Who is Jesus in comparison To angels. It's what everyone's talking about at Starbucks. So who is Jesus in relationship to the angels? Now, why this unpacking uh, of the the Old Testament text that we see throughout chapter 1 here, these, these quotes about angels, all in order to make this case that Jesus is above and beyond the angels. Now, it might seem odd to you and I to, to, to think that this would be a burning question in the time that the, the author writes this book. You and may not ever question why, why or why not Jesus is greater than the angels, but there's a real good reason for that. Because when you and I think of angels, we think of this. Ooh! Or if they're going to rock out, looks more like this. No one's scared of that angel. No one's like, oh, the angels are coming. You and I have a version of angels that comes more from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And I'm sad to say, we also have a version of the devil that comes more from the Renaissance and evil that comes more from the Renaissance than from Scripture. Now, in, in the day that this was being written, the, the day that the author was writing to the Hebrews, they had a very different idea of what the angels were like. If you look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, I, I have that text there. It was, in the year King Isaiah died. This is the prophet Isaiah getting a vision of heaven. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim angels, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. 
faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. The, the covering of faces and feet is this idea of holiness coming before the presence of God. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundation, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed. Literally, the Hebrew is this language of my, my body is falling apart. Here I am all over the floor. Change my shorts. That might be the, okay, that was bad. That might be the modern version. It's worse than that. Because I'm a sinful man, and I've seen the glory of God. I've only seen where his feet are. These angels are just hanging out at his footstool. How great must God be? And I've got filthy lips, and I, love, I live among a people of filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. They were mighty. They were powerful. They induced fear with every person. The first response to an angel every time was to fall on your face and say, I'm falling apart. That's why over and over, the angels just needed a shirt that said, do not be afraid. Because every time someone in Scripture sees an angel, they freak out, and they think they're about to die. Those are just the angels. In Ezekiel, we see another glimpse. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. There was fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except that each had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet had hooves like those of a calf and shone like uh, burnished bronze. Under each of their four wings, I could see human hands. So each of the four beings had four faces and four wings. The wings of each living being touched the wings of the beings beside it. Each one moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. Each had a human face in the front, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle at the back. You an idea that Ezekiel's having a hard time writing this. Could you imagine? Just stay right there. They're trying to kind of write down and, and figure out these unbelievably powerful and, and mighty beings. These are what the first readers thought of when they thought of angels. We, we know what Ezekiel's seen. We know what uh, Isaiah has seen. You're telling us that this Jesus who physically walked among us, who died a death and then walked out of the grave three days later, he's greater than this? Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's not at the footstool. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Mighty, powerful, unapproachable, seemingly, indescribable beings of light. Yet Jesus, in Jesus we have a Savior. With more might, with more power, with more glory, with more authority, who is more approachable than these beings of light. Because he made himself lower than the angels, the author writes in Hebrews 2.9. What do we see in Jesus, who was, for a little while, was given a position a little lower than the angels? And because he suffered death for us, he's now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. And that is why he is approachable, although he is greater than these beings of light. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, the angels are great. The angels are great. The point here is not to say uh, some people thought that maybe there was angel worship going on. There's not a lot of evidence that there. And that actually takes away from the argument of, of the author of Hebrews. What, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, listen, 
Remember how mighty angels are? Remember how powerful angels are? They are unbelievable. Jesus is better. They are incredible. Jesus is more incredible. This isn't negative towards angels. It's, it's elevated. It's saying how great angels are. What it's doing is putting everything in its right place. Because when everything is in its proper place, they're better understood. They're given their, their full flourishing, and Christ is given his proper authority. Jesus is greater than these angels. He's greater than the, they are messengers, but Jesus is the message. They are servants of the most high. He is the most high. They are creatures of light. He is the light. They proclaim the salvation of God. He is the salvation of God. Throughout chapter one, the the author reads these texts of the Old Testament Psalms. He's quoting Psalm one, Psalm 45, 102, 104, and and other Old Testament writers, Moses and Deuteronomy and and Samuel. And he he applies these words throughout the Old Testament to Jesus, saying, although they were were spoken of and about uh, ancient leaders and and ancient people, they are perfect descriptions of this relationship that God the Father has with Christ. This great description of how this relationship works. So the author of Hebrews sees in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the perfect words to explain the greatness of Jesus. Jesus' intimate relationship with the Father, unlike any of the angels. In verse 5, he quotes Psalm 2, 7. For God never said to any of the angels what he said to Jesus. He never said, you are my son, today I've become your father. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. Jesus' position is above the angels. Um, He's talking about Deuteronomy 32. I'll unpack that in a second in in verse 6 of Hebrews 1. And when he, he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all of the angels worship him. Jesus' rule and and authority is unlike any other rule and authority, quoting Psalm 45 and 110. He says in verses 8 and 9, But the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, refers to him as God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O God, your, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy. That's messianic language there. That's chosen language for the Son, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else. And the endurance of Jesus throughout all of time in verses 10 and 12. He's quoting Psalm 102. He says to the Son, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. You made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You'll fold them up like a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same and you live forever. And to clarify in verse 14, angels are just servants sent to minister to God's people. When we get get that, get get everyone getting in their right position, there's the Father, there's Christ, there's angels, and you know what? Angels are here to serve us. What? When we say, when someone passes away, they've got their wings, that's degrading where we're going. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. Sitting next to Jesus. Angels are just messengers. I I wouldn't say that if I was Isaiah. I wouldn't wouldn't have dismissed him, but just saying. (laughs) You're just messengers, right? If all of the glory and the power, if Jesus is is the voice of God uh, above with might and beauty, above the angels, then that means there's a certain way we ought to relate with Jesus as well. There has to be a response. And how we look at our relationship 
with Jesus. And that's the last thing I want to look at this morning. Well, who is Jesus in relationship to you and I? And this kind of unpacks all through the second chapter of Hebrews here. First, we need to listen to what Jesus has to say to us. We have to listen to what his life proclaims to us. In Hebrews 2, verses 2 to 3, it says, For the message of God delivered through angels was always, has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think? What makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation? That was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak. Meaning there were angels in the Old Testament that delivered Yahweh's message to the people of Israel. The apostles are the new angels delivering the message of Jesus Christ to you and I. In the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 33, when when God made a covenant with the people of Israel saying that he would be their God and and they would be his people. And if they obeyed his law, the Ten Commandments, and there's a lot more to it, all that surrounds that, uh, if they went into covenant with him and followed his law, there would be times of blessing and and refreshing. If they refused to follow him, there would be times of curse and brokenness. And he said, he lays it all out and he says, are you in? And all of Israel says, we will do it. They all agreed to this covenant. And the idea is that there were angels surrounding this great ceremony at Mount Sinai in the, in the desert. And although the original story in Deuteronomy kind of hints at how massive this amount of angels was, there was this tradition in, in Jewish thought that there's just a massive amount of angels surrounded this ceremony. We see this in Psalm 68, 17, uh, when David writes, Surrounded by unnumbered thousands of chariots, he's talking about angelic beings, the Lord came from Mount Sinai into his sanctuary. Early followers of Jesus um, believe this as well. Stephen, before he's, he's martyred in, in Acts Uh, chapter 7, he's speaking to the religious people of the day, and he says this in Acts chapter 7. Do we have that one up there? Yeah, he says, you deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. There was this idea that you couldn't see God face to face, so he'll get his messengers to kind of be the go-between, so you're not completely destroyed. So in Hebrews, the author, what, what, what he or she is saying, they're pointing back to this giving of the law of God to, to the people of Israel, and he's saying where, where, where there was this power displayed, there was, there was fear and there was reverence before this, this power of God. And the author of Hebrews says, you think that was big? You think that was a big deal? You think the consequences were rough for those who ignored God revealing himself to you? Imagine the consequences of ignoring his actual son when his son shows up. What, you thought it was bad then? What do you think is going to happen if we ignore the very voice, the very son, the very salvation of God through his son. See, if, if you and I received a letter from Trudeau or Trump or the queen or someone you expect or respect or someone with power, if you received a letter, you would read that and it would have some potency to it. might have their stamp on it. But if you didn't heed that letter and they showed up at your house, that brings a whole new level of authority you're probably not going to be like, I'll be right with you. I'm getting some gems. It's probably not going to happen. That's what the writer of Hebrews Hebrew is saying. How, how, how could you possibly think? 
when he has stepped into your very presence physically, proved his authority through his life, death, and resurrection, how can you possibly think that we can just brush this message aside and go on our merry way? That's why he says, do not drift in verse 1 of Hebrews 2. Do not drift. There's this visual here of, of a boat that sees the harbor but doesn't bother paddling towards it. Sees the safety and goes, I know I need to put my anchor right there and just goes past it. The other people say, don't drift past it. Don't drift past it. This is where your life is. Do not drift past it. Instead, in verses 9 to 10, follow him. Follow him where he has made a path for you. In verses 9 to 10, what do we see? What we see is Jesus, for, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. This perfect leader that we would, we would translate like a pioneer, someone who goes before. He's the perfect person to follow because of what he's done. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, Scripture tells us. He is the one. That is the gospel in a nutshell. There is this, this image in this passage of this, this leader pioneering, stepping up, taking the lead through difficult territory, choppy waters, overgrown jungle, and chopping through to make a way for us so that there is a path for us to follow. There's this idea that humanity is trapped, overshadowed by sin and death, that that it always accompanies, and, and it's, it's the goal of sin to bring us into shadow and death. That's why we don't play games with sin. And it leads us into this jungle with, with overgrown weeds and, and brokenness. And the, uh, this image we have is, this, is Jesus coming into this jungle and chopping at the weeds and the, the overgrowth and, and making a path for us that takes us out to a beach that's, that's open and there's fresh air and there's rescue there. We need someone like this. And Indiana Jones, to take out his machete, to, to go ahead of us and, and take a group who, who has found, no, he's not that important. You can bring the lights up. No, sorry. <laughs> Make sure we see the stubble. Chiseled chin. Who, who steps in and finds this, this group who's, who's lost with no possible way out. It's dark. There's, there's poisonous creatures. And he comes ahead of us. He says, I will make a path for you. A perfect path. I'll I'll take on this task. I'll do what needs to be done. And so as he cuts through shadow and and dense jungle and bush, all that seems impassable for us, he's bitten by poisonous snakes. He's, He's scraped up. Those things have left their marks on him. And we see that in Christ, that the, through the cross, he, he's the pioneer that, that, that cuts through all the things that we fear. He makes a path after hacking through that opens up to ocean and light and fresh air and rescue. And it's as if he comes back to us through the apostles and he says, I've made a way through. Follow this path out. I've punched a hole through death. There are no other paths out. Don't stray off. Just stay on this path. Don't drift into the jungle. And the point that the Hebrew writer, as he tries to encourage this first century church, and I would say speaking through him, trying to encourage you this morning, that death and shadow 
The anxiety that it brings, the anxiety that our lives bring are dealt with for those who are in Christ Jesus because he was the first to find a way out and punch a hole through death and sin and shadow. And Jesus comes to us after he has made a way through and he says, do you want to follow me out? Follow me out. That's what the gospel is saying. Jesus has punched a way out. Do you want to follow me out? John 6, 68, Simon Peter is given the option to walk away from Jesus by Jesus himself. Are you done, Peter? It's getting hard, isn't it? And Peter says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. You are the only one, Jesus, who can punch through. In light of who you are, what you've done for us, we follow you. That is what it means to be a Christian. That means that we identify with him. We find our identify, we lean, we, identity, we lean further into him. There, there's a theme of, of making sure that the hierarchy and the positioning of everyone in the story here are in their right place and have their correct labels. Jesus is the son. He's greater than the angels. He's the very word of God. He, he's enthroned next to the father. And by the way, uh, wh- while he sits on the throne, the throne, he points to you and I and puts us in our proper place. And he says, all those who follow my path, those are my brothers and sisters. Everything that Jesus has done, where he seated and who he, where he is seated and, and who he is, puts you and I in our right position as well. When we say we are going to walk this path as well, we want to we want the life and the fresh air that you bring, and we are going to follow down this path. We have the same Father. We've been adopted into God's family. The inheritance that belongs to the Son belongs to all of us if we are His followers. The way the Father looks to the Son is the same way. We, we cannot grasp this. The way the Father looks at the Son is the same way he looks at Jesus' brothers and sisters. It's what it means to be in Christ. It's why it's such an important theme in, in Scripture, is that when you are in Christ, God, is, when he's looking at the Son, is looking at you. And he's saying, you are my beloved. You have been given the right to be called children of the living God, John says in John 1.12. And in verse 11 of Hebrews 2, he's not ashamed. Can you grasp it? This Jesus is not ashamed. I don't care what you walked in with today. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. That's good news. When the prince of the most high says, you are my brother or sister. All right, I thought maybe an amen would be worthy, but whatever. Do you believe that? Because it'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you live when you find yourself tripped up by a root on the path. It'll change the way you live when you fall on your face. You'll get up, you'll wipe it off and go, I'm a child of the most high. I've been given the right to be called children, a a child of the, the living God. I am a brother or sister of Christ. So let's keep walking. We're given all the rights of the throne room, all the inheritance. So we find our life now forever in him and the path that he has cut through for us. We find our very life in him, and that's where the author of Hebrews ends this, well, what we've created of as a chapter. He has gifted us life through his death. In verse 14, it says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death, had the power of death. And the way that Jesus punched through 
death, cut through death on our behalf was by giving his life. He became like us in all our experiences so that he could help us in our experience by going before us. In verse 17, it says, Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. In order to do a work for us, he had to become like us. It's as if the only way to cut through sin and death was to to be pushed into the inside so we could push out. It's as if we, we, we allowed the weeds and the undergrowth to become so entangled that Jesus had to come in and start hacking through from the inside to push a way out for us. And as Jesus chops through the undergrowth and the growth of sin and shadow, he takes the scratches. And he took the venomous bites of snakes. And he brings us to the open space or, where we don't need to fear those things anymore because they've already used up all their power on him. And so as Christians on, on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we listen and we follow and, and we place our trust in the path that he has already tread for us. Don't start cutting new paths. They just lead to more venomous snakes. They lead to more shadow. When things start making their way into the path that he's cut for us, chop them down. Don't let them weed in. This area still has its roots. It still has its snakes, but they can only bite. They can't poison. They've already used it up. They can hurt, but they can't have complete reign over us because our our path has already been created. And when we look to the resurrected Christ, we know where this path is leading. Hebrews 2 verse 18 says, since he himself has gone through suffering. This is such a powerful statement. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Guys, as we make this walk, the Spirit of Christ leans in on us and he says, I remember that part. When we walk in fear, when we walk this path and we come through a time of fear, Jesus, the Spirit of Christ leans in and he goes, I remember fear. I identify with that. I remember being in the shadow of a cross. When we walk through life and we're being rejected by people who once said they loved us, Jesus says, I I remember that. I remember when I needed my friends the most and they all took off. I I remember that. I'm not ignorant of that. When you feel anxiety, he goes, I remember that part of the path. That was horrible. That was a horrible part. I'm with you even in this. And when ultimately we face death and we know death is coming, we look at Jesus, he says, I remember that part. But I'm with you because I burst through that part. You don't need to fear that. I'll walk with you even in this rejection, suffering, feeling alone. Jesus says, I am with you. When Jesus said in the Great Commission, I am with you to the end of the age, can we stop thinking that that's a metaphor? 
He is with you. We, we got to be careful we don't get this, this Western mindset of heaven being way up there. Heaven is a lot closer than you think. Scripture uses the word reveal when it talks about the heavenly realm, meaning it's right there, <laughs> right behind you. Jesus is always the unseen guest, whispering to you, I remember that part. I am with you even in this. We do not serve an ignorant Savior. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Guys, that is a practice that we have to continue. Practicing the presence of Christ in our lives. And, and it happens in, in, in Christian community. It happens as we gather and we worship and we unpack the word of God. It happens when we spend time in, on our own in prayer and, and, and reading through the gospels and God's promises. Where we grab these, these, this, this concreteness of what it means to follow Jesus and remember that he walks with us as we listen to his voice and we continue down this path together. I make this point every, oh, almost every week, let's just face it. Our faith is not meant to be walked alone. Never in scripture are we proclaimed an individual faith. Yes, we each, God has no grandchildren. We all come to Jesus on our own. That's our own personal decision. But it is never meant to be lived out in any healthy fashion as a solo act. And one of the ways we continue to practice that together is through communion, which we're going to do now. The, 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 very, the very name, communion, <laughs> tells us what we're doing. We're, we're leaning into Jesus and saying, we need more of you. We need sustenance. Just like the Israelites who were in, in the desert, which is a, a great metaphor for what it means to follow Jesus down the path that he's cut for us. Even while they were in the desert and, and God would provide them with manna every morning and it would just be enough for the day to get them through. And every morning they would come to open the tent and say to God, just give us what we need for today. Just give, and then we're going to come to you again tomorrow morning. That is what we do when we come for communion. We declare we want to continue down this path, but it's hard. And we need your spirit to walk with us. And we need, we need handles as we walk through this. And so as we take communion now together, if you are a Christ follower, you are, well, this is not the CA Church communion. This is for all, all those who call Jesus their Savior, who, who, who trust him as the voice, the son, the very salvation of God. So you're welcome to take part in this communion. And, and just as a reminder, as we take communion, we're, we're declaring a few things. We're declaring everything that what I've just been talking about this morning. We're declaring that, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did what, the, what the, the New Testament tells us he did, what the Christian tradition tells us he did, that he, he took on flesh, he walked among humanity, lived a perfect life, gave his life on a cross, and three days later, burst out on the beach, <laughs> came running back, through his, his apostles and said, I've made a way, follow it. That's what we're declaring when we take communion. We're also declaring that one day he's going to come back and he's going to meet us on that beach. He's going to say, it's done. This story is finished. We're going to eat this meal one day face to face with Jesus. This is all practice as we do this together. And then finally, what we're saying is, Jesus, we need that voice every day. We need your spirit in our ears speaking to us. I remember that part, and I have not abandoned you. I am walking with you. I don't care what you're walking with. I've experienced it, and I'm walking with you. Whether you're coming here with physical ailment, emotional, or spiritual, Jesus has walked through it. 
And so I want to invite you, as we take communion now, whatever the need is where you need Jesus to lean in and his spirit to give you counsel and comfort, take that time, take those seconds, those, those minutes to do that before you come down and take communion. Let me pray. The team will lead us, and when you're ready, you can come up and take communion. God of grace, oh, what a privilege to call you our Father. What a privilege to call you our Father. Because of nothing we've done, yet you give us the right to be called children, sons and daughters of the living God. And Jesus, you've given us the right because of all the work you've done. You call us your brothers and sisters. You call us one with you. Call us one with Christ, that our life is caught up in who you are and what you've done. That you've given us the honor of being seated next to the Father as we abide in you. Holy Spirit, we need counsel. We need comfort as we continue to walk this path cut out for us by Jesus the Son. And so whatever roots have grown in, whatever snakes have made their way onto the path through the Spirit, God, I just pray you would give us uh, the, the strength and the trust to rid ourselves of those things and pursue Christ wholeheartedly, as we'll read later in this letter to the Hebrews, to, to get rid of all those things that, that tangle around our legs and try to keep us from following Jesus. Whatever those things are, point them out, Holy Spirit. And Jesus, may we trust you with every aspect of our lives. We proclaim your greatness. We proclaim your salvation. We proclaim your glory through this worship, through communion this morning. Amen.